Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is our Christmas special by virtue of the fact that it's the last one before Christmas. I always remember something a friend of mine said to me about Christmas specials. He said they're just longer versions of programmes you've done your best to avoid all year. But hopefully that won't apply to this uh, because I'm joined by Phil Yates, uh, Snooker Scene's chief reporter, to discuss the year, literally the calendar year, uh, through 2015. Phil's on the phone, so we're going to sound a little bit different, but uh, we'll crack on. Well, the, the first big tournament, of course, is always the Masters. And uh, an interesting final lineup: Neil Robertson against Sean Murphy. I think a lot of people thought Robertson would win, a lot of people thought Murphy would win. But I don't think, Phil, anyone thought it would be 10-2 either way, which, of course, was the score. Absolutely not. I mean, the whole tournament had been very good indeed. Of course, it was at that tournament where Ronnie O'Sullivan broke Stephen Hendry's record for uh, most centuries in professional competition, which is a real milestone for him to get to. Fantastic stuff. Murphy had played well to get to the final. Of course he had. But Neil Robertson had been brilliant. He'd beaten Ronnie O'Sullivan 6-1 in the semi-finals. He looked a a million dollars. Uh, and yet, in the final, he was very flat indeed, and Murphy's 10-2 victory, as you say, to become the 10th player to win the Triple Crown. He won the World Championship in 2005, the UK Championship in 2008, and then the Masters. That 10-2 victory was completely out of left field, totally unexpected. I think it was only the year before. He'd been a bit down in the dumps. He'd lost in the semis, which, you know, is no no disgrace. But he was getting close to winning tournaments, and he wasn't winning them. But well, what happened after that was he... He won a couple of the European Tour events, really attacking like he had uh, when he won the World Championship in 2005. And, uh, and also, he's a big occasion player, isn't he, Sean? I mean, he, he loves that, that big stage, the big crowds. And I think he just when his confidence is up, he, he's a real, real handful. Well, the word I think that was most important was one in your last sentence there, confidence. All of the top players have the ability to play at their very highest level when they've got self-belief, when they've got confidence. Why they get it, perhaps they don't even know. We most certainly don't. But on that occasion at Ali Pali that week, Murphy had plenty of confidence, and his whole game was transformed as a result. To beat Robertson by any score in a Masters final is a real feather in your cap. To win 10-2, I think that just showed that he's a very dangerous opponent. You don't win the World Championship playing as well as he did, albeit 10 years ago, without being a class act. And Murphy showed it again at Ali Pali. And what we also saw was uh, a change in Ronnie O'Sullivan's season because, of course, prior to Christmas, he'd won champion champions and the UK Championship, playing some great stuff. But Robertson basically took him apart in that semi-final and it was clear that he fancied winning. You know, we've seen even top players have been in awe of Ronnie. I think that slightly changed after Mark Selby beat him in that world final. He sort of showed the other top players that you could beat him. And the rest of Ronnie's season wasn't much to write home about, was it? It wasn't, no. I think uh, you're right that uh, Selby world final was very important in terms of what it did for players' perceptions of O'Sullivan. I think one thing we've got to take into consideration here, though, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Ronnie celebrated his 40th birthday. Now, no one can hold back the, uh, the hands of time, as they say. You know, 39 years of age, that's an advanced age for a snooker player, and he was doing really well. But you can't expect him to be right at the top of his game uh, at such a, a late stage of his career. People are saying, you know, if he comes back now, how will he play? Well, he might play brilliantly for the odd tournament or two, but can he sustain it? I would say at the age of 40, maybe not. And we saw at the Masters, and as you say, in that World Final, that maybe the time has come for him to start thinking, well, I can't be the top player I was for an extended period of time. I can still put in those great performances, those extraordinary displays, and win the odd tournament here or there. But with regard to being the world number one and the dominant 
dominant figure in the game? I don't think so. Yeah, I just think with what Selby did and what Neil Robertson did, it sort of showed the other top players. Actually, you can beat Ronnie O'Sullivan, and, and, and we'll come on to, obviously, his defeat to Stuart Bingham at the Crucible in due course. But the next big tournament was uh, the German Masters, where actually Sean Murphy did beat him in a fantastic quarter-final. Sean got to the final, obviously riding on the crest of a wave of confidence after winning the Masters, up against Mark Selby. Now, it was a very interesting final, this. I was there in Berlin, and uh, 5-2, last frame of the first session, Selby well behind, made a great clearance. And I went back to the hotel afterwards, got in the lift, and it was apparent that someone was sort of approaching the lift, so I held the door open. It was Mark Selby. And if, you'd have, if you hadn't seen any of the match up to that point, you would have thought he was something like 6-2 up. He looked so relaxed, so confident. And all he said was, I think that clearance has kept me in the final. And I thought then he's going to win this. And, of course, he did. It was just quintessential Selby. Well, it was a 62 clearance. And so often in finals, you look back and you don't think about the centuries they've made or the great pots here and there. What you think about are those key clearances, particularly in the last frame of the first session. So often when a player comes into a press conference, you know as well as I do, David, when a player comes into a press conference at the end of a final, I say, it was winning that last frame this afternoon that really stood me in good stead. Winning it was great. Winning it in that manner was even better. And as you say, he went on to beat Murphy 9-7. My personal golden memory of the German Masters this year, though, wasn't so much the final. It was the quarterfinals. What a day that was. 5-4, all four matches. To go to a deciding frame in all of them, remarkable in itself. And one of those uh, quarterfinals, Mark Selby, he beat Judd Trump 5-4 after Trump had made a 1-4-7. That day, certainly, that round had simply everything. It did, and it's a great tournament. The only shame, really, is that it's not a bit longer, but the venue does cost a lot of money to hire, and it's also in demand for, for concerts and a lot of other things. It's kind of like the NEC it would be, I guess, in the UK. But a terrific trip, that. Really looking forward to, to going back to, to Berlin again this year. And also, I must say as well that Mark and Sean, two good blokes, you know, that after the final, we, we were in the hotel bar, they were buying people drinks, just having a laugh. There was no sort of... You, again, you wouldn't have known who'd won and who'd lost. They, the, the, the play was over. They just relaxed and enjoyed themselves. And uh, I think those two really are, are a credit to the sport. Uh, we'll move on. I, I want to mention the Championship League because I know this is a lot of people kind of think this is a rather mysterious event because it's it's completely closed to the public. You can't go and watch. You can only watch it on the internet. But we've been doing it for years. And, of course, Stuart Bingham won it. And I think it, it's fair to say this tournament should not be underestimated for, again, the confidence it gives players. It gives them match play. It gets gives them a chance to, to continually play for a number of weeks. And we saw by the end of the season that that, that really paid off for Stuart. I was saying to Luke from Matchroom, who, who runs the tournament, that this it's a bit like having a tournament in prison because it's so institutionalised. It's like the same thing every day. You have your meals at the same time, so nothing changes. And uh, well, again, I'm looking forward to getting back there because it's uh, it is a, a sort of fun event. But as you mentioned, an important one, and not just Ali Carter that first year because Joe Perry won it and he got to the World Semis as well. Uh, 
John Higgins at the Welsh Open. We'll come on to to, to Higgins's sort of second half of the of the year and these two successes in due course. But again, he was kind of being written off, wasn't he? He was, he was in danger of losing his top sixteen place. I don't think objectively he played his best snooker in Wales, but he's a winner and he knows how to win, and he did win. Well, I never wrote this, and I never said it at the time, but in my mind I was thinking, is he finished? I'm a massive John Higgins fan, but again, you know, the age thing, he was getting towards that time when you think he's going to go into decline. He wasn't playing his best. He certainly wasn't playing consistently good snooker, playing the odd good match here or there. And then he turned up uh, in Cardiff. I think the big win for him was beating Stephen Maguire, a player he holds in very high regard, 5-1 in the quarterfinals. I think his toughest match in many respects was up against Luca Brussel in the semi-finals. Brussel is a real wild card. He plays the game differently from most other people. And I thought he might give John a few problems because he was buzzing that week. And yet Higgins, in that semi-final, made breaks of 101, 137 and 135, looked like his old self. And then I think he had a, the bonus, uh, in all due respect to Ben Wollaston, of playing Wollaston a first-timer in a final, rather than Mark Williams. Wollaston beaten Williams 6-5 in the semi-finals. Higgins knew his experience would mean an awful lot in the title match, and so it proved Higgins won that one by nine frames to three. It became a bit of a pattern. Ben Wollaston reaching the final, new finalists. We had uh, Michael White, we had Gary Wilson. Later on, of course, we had Kyron Wilson, we had Dave Gilbert. There was success for a couple of them, but uh, I think once... Wollaston came through to the final, it was always going to be tough for him over, over two sessions to beat John Higgins. As I say, I don't think Higgins necessarily played his best, but he got the win, and we'll come on to, as I say, his, his, his later triumphs uh, later on. Uh, at this point, we're sort of now February, March. The tournaments just came in an absolute rush, didn't they? I mean, there were no days off between them. It's quite hard to actually follow what was happening. But Michael White, who I've just mentioned, made the big breakthrough, won the Indian Open, but the key factor there was he just won the shootout, which, OK, is not a ranking event, but there is a lot of pressure there. You've got to play quick. There's big money, 32000 the winner. I know you were there, and he did well, didn't he? It's not an easy tournament to win, that. Well, it was a great week for the Welsh, that, of course, at the Circus Arena in Blackpool, because the week started off with the two-day World Seniors Championship, which Mark Williams won very impressively, beating Fergal O'Brien in, in the final. Then we went on to the shootout, and basically... Although it's not exactly meaningful, it's very entertaining indeed, those 10-minute sprints. And I think this year, certainly the final was the most dramatic we've had. Xiao Gudong really should have won it, but he stumbled right towards the end. White got in and eventually won that final by 54 points to 48. I think the, the financial reward from it gave White a massive boost. And what was it, eight days later he went on, as you say, to win the Indian Open. It was a remarkable surge to prominence. The point is he got on the plane to India as a winner. You know, that's the thing, he'd won something. And I, I think his breakthrough is brilliant because he's exactly the sort of player we'd need. He's young, he, he's very uh, attacking, he plays the game in an attractive way. He's actually great to watch, even though sometimes you kind of wish he, he maybe would calm down a little bit. He's quite emotional, isn't he? I think he's emotional, and I also think he's very nervous. He would have to admit that, obviously, but it just gives the impression to me of someone who basically gets very, very, very tense uh, when he's playing. I think one of the problems is, because he loves the game so much, winning and doing well at the highest level means a great amount to him. And that adds the pressure, and of course pressure means nerves, means tension, and sometimes that can be a, a very detrimental thing for a professional snooker player at the highest level. Judd Trump, of course, won the, the new tournament, the World Grand Prix, and that was another example of a top player beating Ronnie O'Sullivan. He, he, he'd lost to him in the champion, Champions Final, he'd lost to him in the UK Championship Final 
finally beat him in that. And then we had the Players' Championship. And uh, I think most people, probably everyone in the sport, was pleased to see Joe Perry win a ranking title. You know, he'd been slogging away over 20 years and uh, finally got his reward. Well, I thought two very good results for snooker in general. Let's talk about Trump's win over Ronnie O'Sullivan first. It's always great to see O'Sullivan win a tournament because he's our poster boy. He's the one that everybody wants to see. I suppose he's snooker's equivalent of Tiger Woods in that respect. When he's playing, the television ratings go through the roof, and when he's on top form, there's no better sight. Having said that, I think it's also great to see Judd Trump at his best. He's underperformed this season, we know about that, and probably we're going to talk about it a little later on. But to win that final against O'Sullivan, a player he holds in the very highest regard, I think was a, a real big achievement for him. And I think going forward, he'll remember that with fondness for the rest of his career. Now, as for the, the PTC Grand Final, uh, or the Players' Championship Final, whichever you, you like to say, uh, in Thailand, I was convinced when Mark Williams took that 3-0 lead in the final, he was going to add to his lengthy list of world-ranking success. Joe Perry was always mentioned in the conversation as one of the finest players yet to have won a world-ranking event. Obviously, people like Anthony Hamilton, Ryan Day, Martin Gould in there as well. And yet, Perry, remarkably for me, came back to win the last four frames. And yes, I think everybody was delighted for him. He's been a real trooper over the years. And he's one of those players, a little bit like Mark Davis, like Stuart Bingham, who maybe has got a little better with age. Yes, and I'm sure he's seen, I mean, he's friends with those two, he's seen them win tournaments, and he must have thought, well, why shouldn't I? You know, I'm, I'm as good as they are, and good to see him get his, his win, although he didn't get a trophy. I think he got one eventually, but for some reason at the end there was there was just no trophy to hold up. Anyway, he, he got it in the end, and he got the title, which is the most important thing. The last ranking event before the World Championship was the China Open. Now, of course, Mark Selby, really, and this is going to start for Stuart, isn't it, from January the crucible curse. We're going to hear all about that. You know, no first-time champion has defended the title, all of that. And he had all this in his ear. But he'd already won the German Masters. He won the China Open. A lot of people, because he perhaps didn't do that well in the, the crucible, say he had a bad season. But he won two ranking events. He's not that bad. Absolutely not. And you know, there's lots of rubbish talked about the crucible curse and you don't want to win yeah, the... Mainly by us. Sheffield <laughs> because you diminish your own chances of doing well at the biggest event on the circuit. We're on the inside, Dave, so we know what the situation is. And nowadays, particularly with the prize money offer, every tournament is a big one in its own right. Any time you can win, it's a real feather, and Selby did so. He beat Gary Wilson in the final, and as you were saying earlier, when a player gets to the final for the first time, like Ben Wollaston did in Wales, like Wilson did, very surprisingly, in Beijing, it's a massive step. When you've never been in the quarterfinals before and you negotiate the last 16 for the first time, that's an ordeal. Again, quarterfinals to semifinals, but the big step is getting into that final. Wilson never really performed when he was there, and Selby obviously capitalised to the full. He certainly did. Now, of course, he's beat my Anthony McGill at the Crucible, who played some terrific stuff in their second round match. The World Championship, of course, ends the season, and... Uh, you know, we, we we go into it. We all have our theories about who's going to win, but the the fun is 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 watching it unravel. And at the end, Stuart Bingham came away as champion. But he came away as champion not with the draw having opened up. That's the the key thing to say. Last three rounds, he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump, and Sean Murphy. A very worthy winner. Well, we're talking about 2015. We're going through all of the tournaments, but we can cut to the chase here. When snooker fans think of 2015 in 20 years' time or whatever. <laughs> It will be the year of Stuart Bingham, like 1986 was the year of 
Joe Johnson, like 1985, synonymous with Dennis Taylor. Whatever he does from now on in, Stuart Bingham was the world champion in 2015, and the way he won it, to me, was simply marvellous. I never thought he'd got it in him. I really didn't. As you say, he had a tough draw. The, the way the tournament started for him, I actually commentated on one of his earlier matches. He beat Robbie Williams 10-7 in a, a very poor first-round contest. It wasn't anything to write home about whatsoever. Um, after that, well, he beat Graham Dot 13-5 in the last 16, still very much under the radar. That changed, of course, when he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan 13-9 in the quarterfinals, making en route a 1-4-5 total clearance, which was the highest break of the championship, as it turned out. And if that wasn't enough, he was then involved in an absolute classic against Judd Trump. Four session match, we kept thinking Trump will push ahead eventually, and it never happened. Bingham won by the odd frame in 33, and from there, well, in the final, he astounded me. Murphy made such a good start, every time he thought he was going to pull away, Bingham didn't just come back, he came back at him, playing brilliant snooker, and I can only give him great credit. Yeah, fantastic. And, and the thing about Stuart, as you know, he, he's just, he has a pure love for snooker. He really does. You know, if, he hadn't, if he'd been knocked out in the first round, he would have watched the whole thing on TV. But he did one thing I think that was really smart, and I think it did make a difference. Before his semi-final, he was, his first session of the semi-final against Judd was the Thursday night. And what he did in the afternoon was he came into the arena to watch the introductions of the other match, which would have been Sean Murphy, Barry Hawkins, just to soak up the atmosphere because he'd never played the one-table setup before. And I think that did put him in good stead. It relaxed him a little bit. It told him what to expect in terms of the reception the players got. And he, he absolutely stuck to Judd Trump. I think a lot of people thought, as you say, on a long match, Trump's going to pull away. Never quite happened. And then, of course, in the final against Murphy, again, Murphy's 8-4 up. You think, OK, well, you've had a great tournament, Stuart, and all the rest of it. But again, he hit back so strongly. I mean, just playing fantastic stuff. Well, I don't think he was the most surprising Crucible champion. Maybe Terry Griffiths winning his first ever tournament as a rookie professional in 79. Joe Johnson, we've mentioned. Lots of others, like Graham Dot as well. But the way he won it, that was the most surprising thing of all for me. The people he beat, and as you say, the way he played to beat them. I don't think he's ever going to be a dominant figure in the game. I think what's happened for the rest of the year has shown that maybe he's had his great hurrah. But boy, there's no better hurrah than that. Those 17 days he'll remember for the rest of his life, I think he'll still win tournaments maybe down the line, the odd one here or there. But no one can ever take that away. And his name is engraved on the World Championship Trophy. And good luck to him. You know, you were saying about that semi-final when he went into the arena and acclimatised himself, as it were. When he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan in the quarterfinals, a lot of people would have been wrapped up in the fact he'd beaten the Rockets, the money he was now on, all that kind of stuff, the ranking points. For Bingham, he encapsulated it in a very emotional interview on the BBC when he said, the, the main thing is, I've achieved my ambition. I always wanted to play in the one-table setup of the Crucible. And he did so. And by being there, not only was he excited, but he was also immensely grateful. He certainly was. And, and we mentioned Joe Johnson, who was a surprise winner, certainly in 1986. But, of course, Stuart had won tournaments. And you often hear people say, well, you know, you hear certain commentators, let's, let's not name names, they say he's won tournaments in China, as if that kind of doesn't matter. But these are big tournaments he's won in China, big ranking events with big first prizes. So it's not like he wasn't already winning tournaments. He, 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 he had silverware under his belt already. Yeah, absolutely. And he was always a, a very good player at times... He looked extremely good, and then he'd sort of fail in the next round, and you wondered whether he was ever going to go above a 
know, when he looks back on it, he might thank his coach, his family, his manager, all that kind of stuff. But I think the player who did him the greatest favour <laughs> long-term was Mark Allen, yeah. who lit a fire under Bingham by questioning his temperament, not on one occasion, but on two occasions. I think after that, he was a different player. Yes, and I think his career will be judged differently from now on because he is 39. He's nearer the end of his career than the start. If he'd won it when he was 22, then there'd be pressure to win it again and again. But like you say, he's won it, and uh, the day he hangs his cue up, he can look back with great pride. Whatever else he does in the in the years to come, you know, he's, he's world champion. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Well, we did have a, a break, of course, until the new season, but not much of one. The first tournament was the World Cup. Um, and there were two Chinese teams in it, which I think raised a few eyebrows. But I think it was a masterstroke having having two teenagers in the second one. I'm not sure. I think it was just done to give them experience. I'm not sure how high the hopes were that they would do well. But of course they won. Zhao Yulong and Yang Bingtao. Okay, it's one frame at a time, but they won it. And and to beat Higgins and Maguire in the final, that's some achievement. Absolutely yes. Let's split this into two. First, we'll talk about the the tournament and the right and wrongs, and then we'll talk about the event itself. I don't like two teams in the World Cup. I think it demeans it. You can't imagine England having two teams in the 1966 World Cup or two teams for the host nation in any soccer World Cup in the the years that followed. Having said that, I think commercially it works very well indeed. And this was tremendous because obviously it it created tremendous interest, not just with Ding, but also with these youngsters who performed incredibly well. Yes, one frame. We can't read an awful lot into it. It's rather like the tournament we were talking about before the shootout. Having said that, I think they showed tremendous composure. Yan Bingtao, 15 years of age, Zhao Yulong, 17, and I think they showed that they're going to have a really good career. Now, my real bugbear, I hate this when people say they're guaranteed world champions. Complete and utter rubbish. I'm not having a go at Yan Bingtao or Zhao Yulong at all. They could well be the world champion. But no one can say anyone who hasn't won the World Championship is certain to win it in the future. I saw Jimmy White in the West Midlands play an exhibition when he was 16 years of age. I was absolutely convinced he was going to be world champion, not just once, twice, but on multiple occasions. He never won it. You can't say anyone's guaranteed. So don't put the pressure on these two. Let's watch them, see them develop, and let's see how they go. But I will say this. Zhao Yulong at 17, Yan Bingtao at 15 are not the players anywhere close to what Ronnie O'Sullivan was when he turned professional at 16. No, although I don't think, I don't think anyone is. But, uh, I mean, I agree with the overreaction. It's usually done for the best reasons. People do it because they're trying to be positive. But like you say, it's putting pressure on these guys. If you hear, say, Ronnie O'Sullivan says it, as he has done about some young players, you know, you think, well, that's a lot to live up to. And, of course, you know, the World Championship, very, very difficult to win. There's a lot of great players who've never won it. But I, th- I thought those two were a breath of fresh air. And of course, what they did do at the Champion of Champions is they, they, they each beat a top player, Murphy and, and Bingham. So uh, in that environment, they, they did sort of thrive. But we, we'll, we'll watch their careers uh, develop with interest. And I also think, Dave, it's very, very good for Chinese snooker mm. when Ding Jinwei won the 2005 China Open beating Stephen Hendry in the final. We, we were there. Yeah. And we were both convinced at the time that this was the start of an absolute revolution, an invasion of Chinese players into the top 16. Now, we've had Zhao Gudong, 
obviously Liang Wenpo uh, more recently doing really well, but we need more really good Chinese players, and let's hope that Yan Pingtao and Zhao Yulong are two of those who are the next generation and maybe take over from Ding and do great things. Absolutely. Well, one man who's done great things is John Higgins, and uh, as we mentioned, by far, far from finished win the Welsh Open, but the rebirth of Higgins was, was confirmed in the second part of the season. I think it was significant personally, I don't know whether he thinks this, but that he turned 40, because that's a milestone in anyone's life. And it's a little reminder again that, you know, you haven't got that much longer to go in terms of your, your playing career. The first tournament, individual tournament he played in after turning 40 was the Australian Open. He won that cracking final against Martin Gould, won that 9-8. But even better in terms of performance was the International Championship. He was sensational in that tournament and just reaffirmed again when he plays his best snooker, what a great player he still is. Well, I think the international championship, definitely in terms of quality, was the best of his three ranking wins in 2015. I mean, there's no doubt about that in terms of pure standard of snooker. But I think what happened in Bendigo at the Australian Goldfields Open, I think that really laid the platform down for what he was going to do a little later on in China. If you recall in the semi-finals, he was well behind against Jamie Jones, 4-0 down at the mid-session interval, Jones playing nicely, and then Higgins won the last six frames, making, by the way, en route, breaks of 134, 89, 133, and 92, 92 in the clinching frame. Now, he followed that up, beating Martin Gould in the final, 9-8, again, decisively winning with an 89 break in the 17th and all-important frame. And I think that gave him a massive amount of confidence going forward. I think it just underlines, again, you know, great players are great players, and age is not necessarily relevant. People say about Ronnie that, you know, he's 40 now, but of course he does a lot of running, and that, that makes a difference. Well, it might make a difference, but John Higgins doesn't do any running. He's just, he's just a great snooker player, and one thing he's never lost, of course, is that knowledge. He always knows what the right shot is, and when he plays it, you know, he, he's close to unbeatable at his best, as we, as we found out in the International Championship. You know, completely destroyed Sean Murphy 6-0. Semi-finals wiped the floor with Mark Selby. And, 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 of course, in the final then, he's playing Dave Gilbert, who's, who doesn't have the experience. It was, it was just impossible to see him losing that. Well, a lot of people will say, yes, John Higgins has won three ranking events this season. But in the final, he's beaten three opponents ranked outside the top 16. Now, that is true. But the point is, he's played brilliantly to get there. And then, of course, these guys have got through, have got a tremendous amount of momentum, and they've not got an awful lot to lose. But against Gilbert, I thought he controlled the match very nicely indeed. And that was, of course, a milestone landmark win for him because that was his 28th world ranking title, which means he drew level with Steve Davis. Now, he's got one more on the all-time list than Ronnie O'Sullivan. And now there's only Stephen Hendry to shoot for. I don't think he's going to reach Hendry, but... You might get close. Well, there's so many tournaments coming up next season. You could do it next season. But anyway, we'll, 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 we'll find out in due course. Kyron Wilson, we must mention, because he did come through the pack and uh, played superbly in Shanghai. He beat Ding Junhui, beat Mark Allen, drew Judd Trump in the final and, uh, and beat him 10-9. And Trump was coming back at him. But one of the things that impresses me about Kyron, he seems very level-headed. And, and, you know, to deal with that sort of pressure when it's all new to you, very impressive. It was. I mean, to beat Ding Junhui... In China, particularly in Shanghai, which is a, a really big tournament and a, a lovely venue as well, perhaps the best venue we play at in the People's Republic, uh, to, beat, to beat him 5-4 in the quarterfinals, that was uh, a very good sign for Wilson. Then to beat Mark Allen 6-1 in the semifinals, well, that says everything you need to know about his mental attitude. I think it's quite significant that a good friend of Wilson and 
an erstwhile practice partner is Peter Ebden. And they've got a very similar kind of approach. They both have total belief in their own ability to overcome any opponent. And in this case, that belief was well-merited because he then beat Trump in the final 10-9. Now, I was praising up John Higgins for making that big break in the decider against Martin Gould in Australia. When Wilson had his chance in the decider against Trump, he made a 75 break. I think that augurs well for him in the future as well. It certainly does, and it's good to see someone new breaking through. And, and also, without wishing to revive the old flat draws you know, debate, because I think people are sick of that, the one to eight, the fact is he won this under the old system, you know, the, the old qualifying system, where you, you don't draw a, a big name in the first round, although he wouldn't have done because he's in the top 64. But actually, he proved he can actually, he can actually win tournaments un, under the old system. Yeah, and I think it was also uh, very good for the game, because a lot of the, the same winners win all the time, don't they? We need an infusion of new blood. I think since Ding and then a little bit later on Judd Trump came through, the the names winning the events have been pretty much the same. Obviously they've been divided by 10, 12 players but we needed some new names to really lift silverware and obviously Wilson has done that and good luck to him. Yes and they've kind of been getting older as well but one man who uh, is in the prime of his career in his early 30s of course is Neil Robertson and uh, I just got, I had a feeling, uh, to be honest, that he was going to do something at the Champion of Champions, purely because he hadn't done anything all season and that he would have been wanting to, to, to put that right. He hadn't played that much. He disappointing to go out first round in Australia, looked a bit rusty at the Shanghai Masters. But Champion of Champions and then the UK Championship in particular, he, he just proved again just how good he can be when he's at his best. Well, in a season, in a year where the very cream of the game overall found it difficult to play at their best for lengthy periods of time and many of them have struggled Selby's had his slumps Trump's in one at the moment O'Sullivan's not played an awful lot in that year I think what Robertson has done um, he's basically resurrected himself the last two tournaments the Champion of Champions and the UK Championship just to win them in any way shape or form tremendous but to win them in the way he did I think he's going to be a very dangerous animal as 2016 dawns. Yes, and this kind of links back to where we started because he said that he learnt from that Masters defeat to, to Murphy. He didn't think he was prepared mentally properly. I mean, Neil on the table, I don't think, has any weaknesses. You know, he's a terrific pot, long potter, great break builder, as we know, terrific safety player now. He's got the big match temperament. The only thing that's really let him down at times is the way he prepares, but he was properly prepared for these tournaments, and it shows what a difference it makes. If you go in fully focused, like he did, you know, he, 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 he could only have lost one match in York, and that was to John Higgins, and you know, you get close matches in these tournaments against great players, but after winning that, superb against Selby, you know, completely controlled the match against Selby, which is not easy, and then, of course, against Liang Wenbo in the final, I mean, it's quite a hard person to play, Liang, because he had the crowd on his side, he's quite unpredictable. Robertson just seemed to shut all of that out, concentrated on his own game, and got the win. Well, when the history of the 2015 UK Championship is mulled over by people, they'll think about the, the last few matches. For me, I think the most illuminating performance from Robertson was the last 16 against Stephen Maguire. He was absolutely immaculate. Maguire went up to him at the end and congratulated him on a, a fine performance. I think his pot success rate was either 97 or 98%. He hardly missed a thing, certainly of relevance, and he carried on from there. He beat John Higgins 6-5 in the quarterfinals in a very tough contest. That was the, the classic case of two giants coming together, a real clash, something had got to give. Higgins was the unfortunate one to lose out when he
might easily have won. In the semi-finals, what a curious egg of a match that was. He beat Mark Selby 6-0, and after those six frames, it could easily have been 3-3 or maybe even 4-2 to Selby. But he won a succession of frames on the late colours, on the black, uh, and uh, after beating Selby, he must have thought, well, I'm a big favourite here against Liang Wenbo. But he didn't get carried away at all. And I thought that match was quite difficult for him because Liang had become a real crowd favourite with his antics and uh, his charisma. There's no doubt he's got plenty of that. And I think early on, Neil might have thought, well, hold on a minute, you know, I'm going to not hard into nothing here because I'm playing somebody who I'm expected to beat. Most of the crowd are on his side. And then, of course, it all changed with a 147 break. Yeah, and uh, he must go into uh, the new year full of confidence. We've got the Masters coming up, and it won't be that long before the Crucible. Neil Robertson's going to be uh, certainly one to watch. It's great, actually. I mean, he's great to watch, Neil. I just think he's the, the complete player now, and, and, and a good bloke as well. So uh, we must congratulate all the other winners at some of the smaller tournaments we haven't had time to, to, to mention. Most recently, of course, Marco Fu and Gibraltar, but there's been players like Mark Allen, Ali Carter, who won European tour events as well. But uh, looking forward to 2016, then, as we, as we begin to wrap this up, I guess uh, what we're looking for is some new winners. Now, we did have some, in fairness, in 2015. We had Michael White and we had Karen Wilson. Who do you think could possibly come through? Are there any players on the tour you think actually they could have their moment? Well, one player who's become a little bit of a nearly man and he's thrown away some very important matches over the years, but you have to rate him very highly. He's a, a fearless spotter and he's come very close to winning a ranking event this season is Martin Gould, beaten 9-8 by John Higgins in the final of the Australian Open. Now, they say that every dog has his day. I think Gould's good enough to win a ranking event, whether he's got enough um, mental fortitude now after suffering such scar tissue in a number of matches recently, we'll find out. But I think he could possibly win one. And I know you're going to laugh at this, Dave, Hmm. but in terms of pure pizzazz and talent... Okay, he might be a little too fast for his own good. He might be wildly inconsistent. But Tep Chira New from Thailand, who won the World Six Reds Championship, let's hope he does something because he's great to watch. He's great to watch. Although, of course, for the rest of his life, he's going to every time he plays he's that that black he missed for the maximum is going to be brought up. I'm afraid. Uh, the one player I, I still think I still think could do something is Luca Brussel. He's still young, and what I've noticed is he's starting to win matches against some of the sort of more grinding players, which is a good sign. You know, Judd Trump, when he broke through, was starting to see off a few, some of these guys. He's still a bit erratic, yes, but uh, I just get the feeling he might do something. Of course, he was in the semis of the Welsh uh, this year. We'll follow his progress with interest next year. The World Championship isn't until April. Uh, it's going to be the usual suspects, though, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I was thinking, because I knew you'd ask me who I thought would win this, I was thinking... I'm in danger here of jumping on a bandwagon, but the way he played at the Champion of Champions, the way he played at the UK Championship, Neil Robertson has got to have a fantastic chance. Now, if Ronnie O'Sullivan comes back, decides to play, of course, and produces his best, I think, clearly, he could also win the title. John Higgins, Mark Selby, the list goes on. I'd be very surprised if Bingham made a successful title defence. That would be extraordinary, but let's not... forget that in 1986 Joe Johnson had a pretty terrible season as world champion turned up at the Crucible and got to the final again so we can't write Bingham off but as it stands at the moment and lots can change as you say because there's so much snooker between the new year and April but as it stands at the moment Robertson's the man for me 
Yeah, I mean, of course, the thing about the World Championship, as we know, it's, it just stands apart completely, not in terms of it, just its status, but the, 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 the format. You know, it's the only tournament with regular two-session, three- or four-session matches, so it's a completely different test. But we shall, uh, we shall see as the, as the months go on who's, uh, who's playing well going into it. Ronnie O'Sullivan, you mentioned there, he's coming back at the Masters, which is going to excite a lot of snooker fans. Uh, doesn't have much match play under his belt, and unlike last time when he came back after taking the year off, of course, isn't the world champion. So it's not quite true to say he's the man to be shot at. It's going to be very interesting to see how quickly he eases back into it. Now, knowing Ronnie, you know, he could hit the ground running, reel off centuries frame after frame and win the Masters, but it could go the other way as well, couldn't it? Anything could happen. <laughs> In terms of betting, in terms of having a wager, he's the worst player possible to be in the equation. You can't bet on him, but you certainly can't bet against him. You don't want to bet on his opponent because O'Sullivan's capable of beating anyone, anytime, anywhere, and by a comfortable margin. On the other hand, if his mind's not right, if he's not with it, if he doesn't want to be there, he could lose to anyone. So don't have any wagers on him, but for the good of the game, wouldn't it be fantastic if O'Sullivan went into Ali Pali, played brilliant snooker and lifted that trophy again? Well, you wouldn't put it past him. And I think it, I think it's a pretty good draw to, to get Mark Williams' first round. And that's absolutely nothing against Mark. But what I mean is it's someone he knows really well. They've had, you know, they've come up together. He's got a very good record against him. It's not like some young kid shooting at him. They're the same age. And uh, it'll be interesting, though. I mean, you know, the anticipation that when he comes back, of course, he's going to be great. The main thing is he's back. And I think that's, that can only be good. For snooker, um, the other thing about the, the year coming up is that suddenly the UK is back in favour, isn't it? We've got these three new events. One of them, I think, is going to be in the Republic of Ireland, but there's going to be one in Scotland, going to be one in England. Plus, the Players Championship has now moved to Manchester. Uh, the, the World Snooker have, have correctly over the years, last few years under Barry Hearn, opened the game up, tried new markets, but the UK market is still important. Very much so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to those new events. I think we were talking about it the other day, weren't we, Dave? And I think we said there's possibly going to be 15 world ranking mm. events next season. And of course, it's a nice balance as well, as you say, not just all overseas. I think the players will appreciate the fact that they've got to make shorter journeys to these events in England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, which is good for them. Then, of course, the World Championship, the Masters and other stuff. I think what Barry Hearn has done in a very short amount of time at the helm has been simply extraordinary. I remember the dark days when there were six ranking events, Masters, and basically that was it. If you weren't in the top 16, you were basically playing once every other month. It was awful. The prize money was down, you'll recall well, when we went to Malta that time, and I think the first prize that Ken Doherty won, beating John Higgins in a great final, by the way, was less than £20,000. Now, money's not everything, but as a friend of mine said, you know, money's not everything, but it's right up there with oxygen. <laughs> that was you that said that. The point is, to give it a sports credibility, you need a certain level of prize money. The prize money's there now, the guys can earn a good living, the ones who do well uh, and who deserve to earn a nice few quid are doing so, and long may continue, and I think what Barry has done has been tremendous, and I think anyone who moans about the circuit in general, of course, there's little gripes here and there about formats and stuff like that. There's always going to be that. But I think anyone who moans about the circuit in general and the way it's been formulated by Barry, well, I think they're totally ridiculous. Well, I agree, certainly top players complaining because they are earning a lot of money and I think this will be seen as a golden age and also I think it's worth saying that if your attitude, I mean there are problems of course, but if your attitude is to be negative, then basically negative things happen. You look at the players we've discussed, 
Sean Murphy, Mark Selby, Stuart Bingham, Neil Robertson, all incredibly positive people. And in 2015, a lot of positive things happened to them. And I'm sure, you know, they'll have the same attitude going into 2016. Well, I think that's an appropriate point to end. This podcast has not been going long. I'd like to just thank everyone who's, who's listened to it, who's tweeted about it, who's uh, given positive feedback. We're going to continue next year. We've got uh, various guests lined up already, so we'll continue with it. But thanks for listening. Thank you, Phil, for your company for this podcast. And uh, to all listeners, we say Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year.